Today, I'm coming to you from Norway, recording at the Oslo Forum. The forum is organized each year by the Norwegian government and the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue to bring together the peacemakers of our time, whether they be UN envoys, grassroots peace negotiators, or the representatives of conflict parties. It's a quite extraordinary collection of people. And this year, we've tried something a bit different for the forum, which is to ask some of those here whether they'd be willing to come on this podcast. Luckily for me, and I guess for you too, most of them said yes. There are some very special people there. You can hear from people like Joaquin Chisano, Mozambican freedom fighter turned president, and Khaula Mata, the UN deputy envoy in Syria who's just stepped down. We're bringing you seven episodes in total. To kick off this season, our first episode is a particularly special one. I just had the chance to sit down with Rustem Umarov, one of the Ukrainian negotiators appointed by President Zelensky. How the war in Ukraine eventually comes to an end is a very live issue. And as we consider our policy choices, it's essential that we reflect on what's happened so far. And Rustem shares just that, because he was there, sitting with Russian government negotiators just days after February 24th. His reflections are gripping because they come from a negotiator reflecting on a current conflict, even as that conflict rages. I hope you find our discussion thought-provoking. Let me know what you think of it, and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the rest of the season in the coming weeks. If you want to find out more about what happened at the forum, we're posting a link in the show notes that takes you straight to this year's report. But for now, let's dive right into the conversation with Rustem Umarov. So at 4 a.m. I got a call from presidential office. After 20 minutes, the first shooting started. The first bombs started uh, landing to Ukrainian soil. From that moment on, I was asked to establish channels of communication. Hello and welcome to the Mediator's Studio. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. I'm here at the Oslo Forum, where mediators and other conflict actors from around the world have come to talk peace. And with me today, from Ukraine, I have Rustem Umarov. He is a special envoy of President Zelensky, a member of parliament and secretary of the Human Rights Committee. Rustem Umarov, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Good evening. Firstly, since we're here at the Oslo Forum together, how does it feel to be here? Well, I never knew that there is a place for negotiators to come because... (laughs) At the moment in Ukraine, a negotiator is just additional workload for a member of parliament. But when I saw that there are so many people who are dealing with a conflict resolution for negotiation, mediation, facilitation, I'm impressed. I mean, you have one of the most challenging negotiation jobs in the world at the moment. But I'm sure you have a lot to give from that experience that others can learn from. So what's been message or lesson that you've wanted to share with this community of mediators and negotiators? Well, first of all, every negotiation, mediation have its own probably pros and cons. And I tried to explain what is the Ukrainian case. I wanted to explain what are the Ukrainian people doing, what is the government doing, what is the members of parliament doing, and exchange ideas on the resolutions in other places of the world, from Latin America to Southeast Asia. I wanted also to discover what is the Norway experience in it, what is could be discussed with our leadership, where Norway could be a party to the conflict resolution. So from my side, let's say, the most important is that 
when the trouble happens, you have to know your objectives. Mm. And our objective was to save lives, to save lives of people because we defend our own country. You should not be hesitative. Why? Because hesitation creates chaos. And if you are firm and courageful, like uh, courage is something that came out of bravery of Ukrainian people, the leaders of Ukraine who stood up for their people. That's what probably was first thing uh, that comes to my mind. Other than this is only architecture afterwards of mm. how to make the objective happen. I want to give our listeners a sense of, of how you got into this role because you were part of a five-member delegation appointed by President Zelensky to engage in talks with Russia. And because this is the Mediator Studio podcast where we try to give our listeners a sense of kind of what peace talks are really like, I want to ask you a lot more about that experience. Sure. But first, take me back to the 24th of February this year. Where were you that day? I was uh, in Kiev. I was at home. I remember that we spoke with the presidential office at 4 a.m. in the morning because uh, we were informed that on 24th there might be an invasion. And since we knew that uh, Russian Federation likes some historical dates, it might be around 4 a.m. So at 4 a.m. I got a call from presidential office and we just exchanged ideas that it's not starting, but in after 20 minutes, the first shooting started. The first bombs started uh, landing to Ukrainian soil. So from that moment on, I was asked to establish channels of communication. At that time, it was Turkey. Uh, so the Turkish president would call to Russian president and uh, ask what is Russia trying to do? Why? Because day prior to it, we requested the Turkish president to call Russian president and ask to confirm and assure that there would be no war. But unfortunately, in 24 hours, he changed his mind. You had to get to work straight away on this incredibly urgent task, but were you also trying to think of your own family, their security and safety? Take us back to that moment when I guess you were trying to juggle quite a few things at the same time. Uh, Three months prior the invasion, uh, of course, there were rumors, so we start preparations. Like, I start preparing our colleagues in the office, saying that we need to be ready physically, mentally, what should be done, so people should train to hold the arms. I also explained to our colleagues that no hesitation should be done. Why? Because uh, the invaders are coming to kill. So you have to be ready to defend yourself and it's your natural right to defend. Because it is a hard thing to explain to people because nobody experienced to hold a gun. And at the same time, we asked some of my colleagues, experts, uh, what should be done for the people, how we should prepare them, what is the first kit, what is the uh, medical aid, how to hold the gun or train with the gun, how to obtain the permission for it. So uh, for these three months, it was a preparation for the bad scenario, which we didn't think that will happen at that time. Nevertheless, we were ready. And when that scenario did come to pass, why is it you think that the president chose you to take on that incredibly important responsibility? 
Uh, I think prior to this date, we already had some cases that had to be sold with back channel privately uh, or not publicly. It's officially, but not public. So we had already have an experience, and that's why the head of the presidential administration, chief of staff, Mr. Yermak at that time, requested to get involved in it. And what's striking for the mediation and negotiation community you know, that's gathered here is just how quickly President Zelensky initiated a dialogue with Russia once the invasion had begun. You know, not all political leaders would, would take that approach necessarily. Uh, and, you know, within a matter of days, you know, that, that team, including you, uh, of five members had been appointed and, and had really even begun to, to start to meet initially in, in Belarus and, and later on in Turkey. Take us into the atmosphere of those first meetings. Well, uh, first of all, President is a very courageous person and uh, he's brave, he's fast, he's creative. He has his friends who became his advisors. They really love him as a friend, as a brother, probably. And he acted fast. He deployed, I think, the best team for that period of time, which were able to assemble in three days a potential grounds for the negotiations. It sent a strong signal to the world that we are civilized a society and uh, very democratic and it sent a signal that we will defend, but nevertheless, because we are civilized, we will use all our instruments in our hands, diplomatic and political, to start negotiations, which was very hard. So that is why in three days we established all the backdoor channels, discussed the agenda, and were able to deploy a first mission that was performing the first meetings in Belarus. Yeah, and... Explain to me how those first meetings were. I mean, did you feel nervous or conflicted as you were entering into that room? I mean, it's a heavy responsibility that you have and bring us into the atmosphere at that time. Yeah, I would say that since the war already started eight years ago, we were mentally fit, uh, we were mentally ready that there would be someday action happening in the capital and in other cities. So... At that point, we were 100% sure that we are on the right side. We're defending our own right, which should be non-negotiable. So that is why, of course, going there at that time, because the planes already wasn't working, the air defense systems was not there. We've been bombed by the air. We've been bombed on the roads, uh, on railroads. So getting to the Polish border was hard because there was queues on the borders. And after that, uh, we also seen Polish government support to us because they provided us uh, helicopters to get to Belarus border. And from Belarus border, we were taken by military helicopters to another location where the meeting was done with the uh, Russians. And... Belarus was a hosting country. And when you were sitting there across the table from your Russian counterparts, tell us a bit about your approach to having that exchange at an incredibly tense time. I was thinking only that I'm so proud to, to represent my country. And uh, thanks God uh, that 
the feeling was that there is absolutely no hesitation that we are doing the right thing. There was so much pride uh, to represent people of Ukraine and to represent the government. And you felt this uh, actually support. Why? Because when the media learned that there is a negotiations, like my cell phone was read from the support SMSs, and that was actually convincing me more mm. that uh, we are on the right track. But atmosphere at that point when we entered to, let's say, coming to a hostile country first, uh, Belarus, because we know that they provide their grounds to attack us. And uh, it's a hostile environment, but we didn't hesitate because it was a diplomatically uh, hard, but Uh, we regarded ourselves as a wartime peace envoys. So it's a wartime. We are on a mission. We represent our people and the government. So we went to this country and meet with a country who wants to destroy us. And then over time, there's a transition in the negotiations and you move from Belarus to Turkey. Talk us through a little bit the kind of evolution of that dialogue process. Yeah, we met two times in Belarus, which was, as I said, firstly, since it's a hostile country, we didn't want to continue it. So our first objective was to bring it to a country where we could, everybody could be equal for safety. So, and when we turned it to Turkey, it was our first success of negotiations because we insisted to make it Turkey, even though Russian Federation didn't want to. And uh, uh, in Turkey, we already start working on a potential architecture framework of future peace, let's say, agreement. And I think during that time, until the April, let's say, uh, the negotiation team have achieved a lot and progressed a lot. But unfortunately, later on, uh, most of the things have changed. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the situation on the ground has, has changed quite dramatically since then. And those formal talks aren't ongoing at the moment. But I'm curious, when you look back on that period, did you still feel that that was an important and useful exercise because it had some exploratory dimensions to it and laid the foundation for something which you might be able to return to in the future? Like when you evaluate that time, how do you see it now? I think Russian Federation underestimated the negotiation team, which were able to present the potential peace agreement in so short time for the most difficult articles and uh, areas which we covered. And it was not aligned, I think, with their military strategy, because their military strategy was to defeat us in our ground. And at the time... Uh, we already were showing a success on the northern front, which is uh, nearby the uh, city of Kiev, Chernigiv, and Sumy. So we defeated them uh, on the northern front, and this was not aligned with their diplomatic effort. And diplomatic didn't count at that time because the military strategy was to capture the capital and to capture most of the uh, cities over one million in population. And that is why this defeat in the north had implications on them, where they changed their strategy by regrouping militarily, stepping back from the peace negotiations, and continue a new strategy to attack us in the south. 
And do you feel that you were able to have that kind of discussion and, and make at least some tentative progress, partly because you were in a different country, Turkey, where you felt safer, as you said? Did that change the dynamics of the talks? No, absolutely not. Uh, the competitive advantage of Ukrainian delegation team was uh, 100%. It's uh, Ukrainian people who supported us. Second, uh, the government presidential office that was quick in decisions, very firm on the intentions. And uh, we were set to put a framework which should be analyzed in Ukrainian parliament. If it will pass in Ukrainian parliament, it might go to referendum, Ukrainian referendum. And if it passes through Ukrainian referendum, if people support it, then we will go to international partners. And if international partners would support this kind of uh, potential peace agreement, then it will go to the political decision of the president. So we laid the architecture and uh, principles of this potential peace agreement. So only the strength, as I said, of the presidential office and people of Ukraine made it. But in Turkey, it was easier logistically to get in. Turkish uh, government was uh, very helpful. It helped us logistically in every possible way by bringing us there because there is no flights in between Ukraine and Turkey. So it was a huge help that we get in Turkey. I want to ask a little bit about the challenge of managing public opinion during those talks because you referenced earlier the strong support you received at the outset of these negotiations. And President Zelensky has been very clear and consistent in his public communications that his expectation is that this war will eventually be settled at the negotiation table. Um, and that's been a very, very encouraging thing to hear. There have been points at which the Ukrainian public have wondered, okay, what level of compromises will be required? And, and, and times at which they felt, well, you know, there's a necessity that some discussions are happening behind closed doors, but, but also a kind of nervousness perhaps, on their part of, of how far that would go. So how did you deal with those times at which public is understandably nervous and as the war escalates and they're seeing more and more destruction on the ground, it becomes harder and harder for them to imagine that they can settle uh, peacefully with, with someone who's committed that? I think one of the ideas at that time, the Ukrainian people saw how Ukrainian defense forces was progressing and successful it's called undefeatable army's success so it's not a syndrome but it's something that has to be studied when people think that their army is undefeatable and we are liberating temporary occupied territories it gives uh, not a hope uh, it gives a power to people to think that we could get more and at this stage uh, anything that negotiation team discusses as a potential agreement might cause a complications. So that was very hard uh, to explain to the public. So how did you try to explain it? Well, our experience was that every party of the negotiation should be having, let's say, a joint statement. But after joint statements, we understood that uh, Russia is 
good in twisting story, in manipulating the story. So uh, we understood after the Istanbul that their strategy media has changed and they will not support the peace agreements because of two things. One, they were defeated in the north. The second, it caused the public negative opinion in Russian Federation. And this was uh, important for them because there was a hatred, right? Because we start monitoring their social media and there was, let's say, uh, criticism for the Russian negotiation team that they want to agree with Ukrainians because at that time already Russian propaganda reached to the top because the Russian media was envisioning Ukraine as an enemy state. Uh, so at this stage, agreeing with the enemy state was uh, not perceived well in Russia. That's why they changed. And so how did you deal with that? I mean, to, did you try to address that message that was being pushed out on, on the Russian side as a concern of yours and ask them to, to deal with it in some way? Since we were always sincere in our intentions, we uh, were doing a good job by meeting the deadlines or providing the solution. That's what Russian Federation didn't estimate. That's why they had to take a decision to stop uh, the negotiations and to advance militarily because they needed to show to their public that uh, they are undefeatable army. So their loss in the north should have been twisted as a gain in the south or in the east. So uh, their tactics or strategy of regrouping became fundamental for them and they dropped the negotiations. I'd like to ask a little bit now about the humanitarian dimension of the conflict. And I know it's something that you've thought quite a lot about and especially because talks on the political track are stalled at the moment and there's a large focus on what can be done to relieve humanitarian suffering, which is happening on a, on a vast scale across Ukraine, as, as we know. Talk to me about how you think the humanitarian response has gone. Well, it's a huge tragedy to lose people on the ground because they are bombarded by uh, the, the country, which does not recognize you or recognize you, uh, your independence and sovereignty. Otherwise, there is no justification. And they are not hiding this. Why? Because if you look to their uh, media, they constantly say two things. No Ukraine as a state, no Ukrainians as a ethnicity. So this hatred caused that their military was not even fighting by the rules of engagement. So that's why they targeted the civilians. And... Since we start losing, let's say, many people being killed in uh, bombardments, after some time, people start leaving the cities, which were either sieged or being bombarded. And that caused an internally displacement, which reached to, I think, 8 million as of today. And uh, during the first two and a half months, the refugees reached up to 6 million people. So the third category on the humanitarian problem became that sieged cities, the people were trying to get to the Ukrainian-controlled territories. So we start opening a civilian evacuation missions 
that's where our negotiations turn to. We, let's say, frozen the negotiations, but we turned it to the prisons of war and civilian evacuations. And within three months period, we achieved to evacuate up to 400,000 people from besieged people, which include tortured people, civilians, raped, prisoners of war, kidnapped children. Uh, So this became a huge humanitarian disaster. But uh, we were there and uh, we evacuated from six different regions, uh, more than 50 different locations. I would like to give our listeners a sense of who's actually doing this work on the ground, because I think sometimes there's a tendency in the international community to think of humanitarian aid as being delivered by large international organizations, you know, whether it be the UN or the Red Cross, but and sometimes actually it's local organizations on the ground who are, who are able to do it, particularly when access might be difficult. So from where you sit, who do you actually see as kind of active in doing this work? In 2014, during the first war, of course, there was a civil population, NGOs helping a lot to the government. But during the second uh, war, the government was doing the best job uh, ever because we didn't see international organizations on the ground the first uh, uh, months. And we didn't... Why not? uh, Because all my life being a, a human rights activist, let's say, I was defending the international organizations but uh, after the first months of war, when I didn't see them on the ground, it was very hard to explain to the population that they mean anything. Why? Because they felt betrayed. And that is why uh, the huge work was done by the government, by the presidential office, to organize the government itself, the organizations, the local organizations on the ground, and the people of Ukraine. They were assisting And that is why from the presidential office it went to the cabinet of ministers. From cabinet there was Ministry of Defense was happening, Ministry of Reintegration was in place. And later on the uh, later stage, the United Nations joined and Red Cross. I'd like to take a moment to step back from some of these immediate challenges that we're discussing and ask a bit about your own personal motivations for being in this work because you're a Ukrainian member of parliament, you've been promoting the rights of Crimean Tatars and I understand your family history means that you're no stranger to conflict and suffering. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure, as a Crimean Tatars, it's an indigenous people of uh, Ukraine which speak Turkic language, Crimean Tatar language who are Sunni Muslims. And uh, during the Soviet era in 1944, they were forcibly deported to Siberia and Central Asia. And uh, my family was deported uh, along with all the nation. And I was born in Uzbekistan, in Samarkand. So until nine years old, I was not allowed to go back to my ancestral land. And during the collapse of Soviet Union, we were allowed uh, to return back after 50 years in exile. So I know from my childhood what does reintegration mean. It sounds very good. At that time, it just sounded that the national movement, how to resettle, and human rights at that time was not a popular issue, but we thought that it's our right, natural li- uh, right, uh, which we said that it's, uh, we are indigenous people of this land. 
we were forcibly taken to Siberia when our fathers, grandfathers fought in the Second World War. But they were betrayed by Soviet uh, Union and their kids, uh, mothers, wives were put in the uh, cattle wagons and were sent to death. During this deportation, 50% of my ethnicity died. So every family lost uh, half of their families or population. So from childhood, I was raised not with a vengeance or something. I was always told of our rich history, who our family was, that uh, they were educated, they were merchants. So it was a good vision that we need to return back home. And at home, when we came, it was a hostile environment. Why? Because when they deport you, they put people from other places from Soviet Union. It, it was central part of Russian Federation at that time was put in Crimea. So uh, the KGB did a propaganda and I understood what is a propaganda during the young years, which means that in Crimea they said these people that were deported, they were deported not because they were opposing communism and who fought against the Nazism, but it was propagated that these people are traitors of the Soviet Union they are enemy of the state. So imagine you've been deported because of the other cause. You come, return to your home, and it's a hostile environment. There is no right to go to school. There is no right to be registered. There is no right to go to the hospital. And your all property is not given back. So you have to build a home. And they make a propaganda that you do illegally this job. So they create a new myth and stereotype. I'm sure that personal experience of suffering and loss that your family had must, in a sense, mean why you are doing human rights and peace work. You know, it's not just a professional thing, it's personal for you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but during my childhood years or school years, I was always raised on a good vision that it's our land, it's our country. And I was proud when to be... Crimean Tatar and Ukrainian citizen and uh, to support my country as independent and sovereign. And it was not popular at that time to say such things, uh, not at least in Crimea, So, because there was a hostility towards the state of Ukraine. But you've also spoken in some of the other interviews that you've given about how extremely hard emotionally and physically it is to engage in negotiations. So where do you find that energy or strength from to continue this difficult task? Well, I, uh, uh, during the war, you have to understand that you are a soldier. And as fast as you can understand, it will be much easier for you that soldiers get orders and there is no way to think of your own. Nevertheless, since we are a creative country and uh, uh, it is in our DNA to fight for freedom with the rules of engagement. I always think positive um, because uh, we see the target, we don't see the obstacle. So that's why uh, thinking positive, thinking of people because it's your objective to save lives. And it's a bright story. That's why it gives you an energy just because more you help, uh, more lives you save, uh, which is a positive attitude. Well, there we must end. 
Thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. Thank you very much. And there we end this edition of the Mediator Studio. To get more episodes as they come out, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also drop me a message on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold and our series editor is Evie Kresner. The producer is Chris Gunnis. Big thanks also to the production teams in Geneva and Oslo. Hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, this is Adam Cooper. Thanks for listening.